10 to 30 percent of employers misclassify their workers. It's a huge problem in the United States and accounts for, I think, a really significant shift in income from working people to the top one percent. People lose so much when they are misclassified as independent contractors. You don't get overtime. And if you get paid less than the minimum wage, they're not breaking any laws. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Well, Goldie, today we're going to talk about worker misclassification because it's a huge problem in the United States and accounts for, I think, a really significant shift in income from working people to the top 1%. I had been a contractor for much of my uh, professional life, and the difference was big. I've had to pay for my own health care, and more importantly... I've had to pay uh, the full FICA tax, which is 15.3% for Social Security and Medicare insurance. And uh, when you are an employee, your employer pays half of that. Yeah, no, it's true. And our dear friend, Heidi Scherholz uh, from the Economic Policy Institute is with us today to share this amazing report they've written on the implications and, you know, just the impact of worker misclassification, which is shocking. A lot of money gets transferred from workers' pockets to owners' pockets. Uh, But uh, with that, why don't we dive in with Heidi and find out what's up. My name is Heidi Scherholz, and I am the president of the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., and we do a ton of work on making sure that low and moderate income people's issues are a part of the broader discussion around economic policy, like helping make a fairer economy. Um, One of the things we've done recently is a report that looks at the costs of misclassification for workers. That means when workers who should be classified as employees with all the rights that are associated with that are not classified as employees, Instead, they are misclassified as independent contractors, and they lose a ton as the result of that. And you can see all of that work on our website at epi.org. So Heidi, before you jumped on, uh, Ashley, Goldie, and I had a quick conversation about contractors ourselves, uh, because uh, Goldie reminded me that when I hired him 10,000 years ago, whatever it was, that he started out as a contractor and because basically we didn't have an org that had right. that sent out W2s, but the dazzling Ashley, uh, who is the producer of this podcast is also a contractor. And we were, we were trying to get to the bottom just in uh, of ourselves of what is a legitimate contractor and when it, when are people being misclassified? That is a 
very important question that I think sometimes gets missed because there yeah. are certainly totally legitimate uses of contractors. And it is an absolutely legitimate sort of business model that can be used very effectively. So I think um, one useful way to think about what's a legitimate contractor is this thing that's, I mean, it, it's come up in various policy contexts, but something that's known as the ABC test. And it's just ABC because there are three prongs to this test that all have to be met in order for somebody to be a you know bona fide independent contractor. And they're all very reasonable. So one is the work is done without the control of the employer. Like you're a contractor, you basically have a set of work to do and the employer isn't telling you exactly how to do it. You, they just hire you to do it. So that's one thing. Another thing is the work that you're doing isn't part of the employer's core business. So that employer isn't hiring you to do the stuff that is the heart of their business. They're hiring you to do, you know, the peripheral things that they need to be done that aren't what their employees are doing. And then the third thing is that you have your own independent business or trade where you do that kind of work. So, you know, you're doing, you have your business, you're doing that work for various customers. So like, you know, you're a licensed massage therapist, you're a public accountant, like those, you're a podcast producer, like those kinds of things where you're, you know, you're, you're professional, you're working for a bunch of clients, all that totally legit. And then there's a whole bunch of cases where those those general precepts are violated and people are taken advantage of. Interesting. So Ashley, do we do we hit those three things? Are we in the money there? Yeah, you're all good. You're in the clear. <laughs> <laughs> good because this would have turned into a very different kind of podcast, podcast. if not. Right. <laughs> okay. So uh we looked at the data, and of course, it is astonishing how much yeah. uh impact this misclassification has on workers across the spectrum, it's it's like 25 to 35% on average, isn't it? In there, kind of? Yeah. People lose so much when they are misclassified as independent contractors. It's just, I mean, one of the things that I think is the reason this is so pervasive is that it's really kind of easy to hide really what's going on. Yeah. Like one of the things that happens is, you know, if you're an independent contractor, you're no longer covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the thing that sets the minimum wage and sets the overtime provisions. And so you don't, you know, if you if you're an independent contractor and you have to work more than 40 hours a week, you don't get overtime. And if you get paid less than the minimum wage, you're not they're not breaking any laws because you're not you're not required to be paid the minimum wage when you're an independent contractor. Well, and this is how Uber and all those sort of gig economy companies yeah. end up paying people so little, right? Is you sit in that damn car for 10 hours a day or whatever it is. And if you only made six bucks an hour sitting in that car, not their problem, right? Exactly. Especially after your expenses. Right. Yeah. Yes. So we did a study where we looked at what Uber drivers make after, just like what you said, Goldie, after you take away Uber fees, you take away vehicle expenses, other kinds of things like that. It, so it's the W-2 equivalent hourly wage. And it 
is at the 10th percentile of all wage and salary workers. So that means Uber drivers on average earn less than what 90% of workers earn. It's just they and and in and in um, a majority of the major Uber urban markets, they're not even making the minimum wage, the applicable minimum wage. Heidi, can you take us through an actual example just from from one of your tables or something like that of like what the difference is? Um, Yes, it's this is. Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to go with uh, I can give you an example. And why don't we start with construction workers? They are great. Rampant misclassification now. And it actually that's been a problem for decades in this industry. So like if you look at BLS data, the typical construction worker had annual earnings, this is in 2021, of around $48,000. So that includes their pay. That's a W-2. That's an employee. They had $48,000. So that includes them, you know, they're getting overtime, any vacation, sick pay, other forms of paid time off. That includes the, you know, all the rights that you have as as an employee. But one thing that doesn't include is that workers who are employees often get some benefits like some health, you know, employer provided yeah. health insurance or retirement plans and employer contributions to things like unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, social security, and Medicare. So there's just a bunch of other things that go in to your kind of total compensation when you are an employee. And so those things just go away when you're misclassified. Plus, you're not going to get overtime provisions. You're you're not going to get overtime pay. You're not going to get paid sick leave. You're not going to get the the host of things that often go with a you know being an employee. And so, what we estimate is that the amount the typical misclassified construction worker loses when they are misclassified is between ten and seventeen thousand dollars a year. That's wow annual losses it's just it's a huge amount for it's a huge amount actually i think for for most people but when you think of the the salaries that are involved it's just a very high share of salaries it's just a it's just this it's a huge loss and it's also somehow hidden and so it's that that contributes to it being a really pervasive problem and so when when you say 10 10 to 17000 that is a as a percentage of their of their income what does that come to because we're you know if it was 10 to seventeen thousand dollars of a doctor's pay okay not as big a deal but a construction worker is typically well, making thousand on forty eight thousands a lot right that's what we're talking about right yeah so it is 20 to 32 yeah. percent that's the what what they are losing when they are misclassified I mean imagine having your just salary, you just your your employment status changes, and you just you take home, you know, thirty two percent less. It's it's a lot. A so lot. do you do you have a sense for the percent of workers or construction workers or anything that are misclassified? Like how how pervasive of a problem is this? Is it five percent of construction workers? Do we have any idea? 
Yes, we. Uh, I don't have idea by occupation, but mm -hmm. and and it's hard to get data on this because you know right. people are no asked whether they're yeah, mustache yeah. right. Yeah, like, there's, but um, the, there are studies out there, and they show in the range of ten to thirty percent of employers misclassify their workers. And is that just misclassifying as contractors, or does that also include misclassifying as managers? That stat is just about misclassifying as contractors. Okay. But that's a good question. And I mean, it. there's a ton of overlap because when you have employers that misclassify on one thing, they are going to be more likely to be misclassifying on other uh, dimensions. But that 10 to 30% is about being misclassified as independent contractors. And naturally, the less power a person has, the more likely they are to be misclassified. So people of color, women, so on and so forth. Is it, are they overrepresented in? Yep. Because of things like structural racism, structural sexism, we have women, people of color, folk concentrated in lower wage industries that are much more likely to, to where they are much more likely to be misclassified. And so, it, you know, that's construction, it's landscaping workers, it's home health care aides, it's housekeeping cleaners, it's nail salon workers, on and on. Those are those are occupations where misclassification is just really common. And those occupations are where people of color and women are disproportionately working. Do, do you have historical data on this? Do you know how common this was, say, 50 years ago? opposed to what it is now? I wish and I do not. It is, that is, um, God bless our government statistical agencies. They are amazing, but they, you know, didn't set up surveys to be able to really get at this. It's very hard. And so the, the, the studies that we do have don't have any sort of longitudinal thing associated no. with them because because i i know we know in some industries have been totally transformed over the past 40 years and yes. truck drivers is one of them where it went from being a salaried good paying middle class job to you know a bunch of impoverished contractors who take all the risk on themselves Yes, you could definitely like actually point to industries where you can see exactly what's happening. The decent data that we do have on like the you know the share of the it, it's not on misclassification per se, but you can get an idea of it if you look at the share of the workforce who are independent contractors. That data only looks at people's primary job, not their secondary jobs. And so the oh, fact yeah. there's wow. a whole yeah. lot of people who, you know, have a W-2 job for their main job, but that job pays so poorly that they have to get the side gig. Exactly. They and they're work, not counted. That's right. They make eight and a half dollars an hour as an employee working for some exploitive service company. Yes. And then they augment their, totally. their salary working for Uber, making $4 an hour. One other thing that I think is so important in this and how it's it's just this this conversation about flexibility. And I feel like uh -huh. the companies who are who are misclassifying workers have really sort of pulled one over on all of us and saying, look, these are actually decent jobs because they provide flexibility that workers want. And 
that and why I say, you know, they've pulled one over on us. I think in some cases they've pulled one over on the workers themselves because when the worker signs up for these jobs, it's often not clear just how little they really will be making, just how much they are trading off for that flexibility. Yes, you can work in the evening after your regular job, yeah. but you are trading off so much to have the right to do that. Um, yeah. And the fact that this is so hidden, it, it has allowed these businesses to really, you know, sort of exploit this idea of flexibility that is that's actually a terrible trade-off for most workers. So let's get to solutions. So what is the policy solution for this problem? I would say there's two key parts of it. It is you have to have a strong standard for, you know, saying this is what it means to be an employee and that it, you know, you don't have people legally having loopholes to to call workers independent contractors. So a strong standard. And then the second prong of it, which is, I would say, as important, is very strong enforcement of that standard. And that second piece is often lost, I think, in these conversations. People think, oh, we'll get the good policy and then we're done. And I think that is not at all the case, especially for the workforce that we are talking about. Wage theft is really, really common. We just need strong enforcement, too. This is something that we should work hard on is that, you know, somebody goes into a store and steals a candy bar, it's criminal. If somebody steals, uh, you know, wages from a low wage worker, it's, well, it, that's an oops, right? That, that's, that's not okay. But Heidi, I, I, what I want to get at is we have worked together for so long on the issue of overtime and raising the threshold. And one of the reasons we love raising the threshold is that then you don't have to argue about whether the person really is a manager or not, right? Like the threshold in, in the overtime case is massively simplifying in terms of enforcement, correct? Right. There's no test anymore. There's no test anymore. You don't have to, and you don't need inspectors to be arguing with people about whether somebody is entitled to overtime if they're below the threshold. Yes. So is there a cleaner that, that that's sort of a clean way to do enforcement on overtime is there a clean is there an uh, an analog in this case are you suggesting a contractor threshold nick something i don't i don't know I, i'm just saying it's on a, on a case by case basis this is obviously hard to manage and complicated right i mean goldie you know you and i and ashley had to give it some thought to decide whether ashley was a legitimate contractor well we right? just and, had to and ask, get more information. About okay, what, but who yeah. who is going to administer that? That's right. Like, come it's on, it's complicated. It's complicated. Right. And and how many people are you going to need to employ to go employer to employer and talk to a, every single person who works there and ask those questions? Right? Like, it's not. This is a super hard thing to manage, given the pressures. It, it, it's on us, I think, <laughs> as people who care about this and want to, and, and want to develop a policy solution. To go farther than just than saying, you know, don't and darn you and here's clearer language, right? Feels like there should be a policy innovation available that would make this harder to do, I guess. I don't know. That, so that, you that's my I, thought. 
Yes, no, I get that. And I want to come up, I think you and I should put our heads together, come up with that policy. But in the meantime, the you can think of things that will move in this direction. Like one of the things is actually requiring employers to provide clear statements of their employment status to their workers. Like that is not required. Employer Employees are not required to get a a statement that says, this is how much you earn, this is how much you worked, this is what your status is. And so even just having something like that makes it so that if employee actually knows how they're being classified. And if it's wrong, it gives them better documentation to potentially see the situation remedied. So that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, fully funding our enforcement agencies is yeah. like just a very, very, very simple first step to to boosting the enforcement. But I I absolutely take your point. Like this is tricky, but I mean we can tackle tricky stuff. This is this is such a fundamental, I mean, this is your fundamental employment relationship. And yeah. so yep. we we have to get it right. I don't know, Nick. I'm here in this conversation. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but there's there's this piece you should read called Shared Security. Yeah, it was in Democracy <laughs> yeah. Journal a few years ago. Yeah, that it's to kind of straighten all this stuff. Yeah. A a universal prorated and portable benefit system that gets around all this classification stuff by just saying that work is work and yeah. whoever is sending the payment to the worker has to uh, contribute yeah. into these shared security accounts to provide for these benefits. Yeah. That would be how you solve it. Come to think of it. Yeah. Who wrote that? Uh, some, <laughs> some guy some... named Nick Hanauer and yeah. David Rolf, I think. Yeah. Maybe David Goldstein. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I might've helped out a bit. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We should put that in the show notes too. We should, yes. Yeah. We'll provide yeah. a link in the show notes yeah, because I think that, it gets to... to a lot of these issues and yeah. in, and really explains it, 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 not just in a nuts and bolts, uh, data way, but also has, uh, I think there's a little, uh, emotional, uh, pull to the piece as well. Yeah. Absolutely. It is true, though. It is so complicated. And whenever and look, anytime something is complicated, the forces of darkness are going to take advantage of that. Right. And, and to a certain extent, you can't prevent all of that. But I suppose we could just with more effort and clarity prevent a bunch of it. Most of it, in fact, probably. So interesting, interesting. And so, Heidi, is it really hard to characterize in some like the aggregate number of dollars, could it be up to 10 or 20% of all workers being misclassified? I don't know. Is that is that too much? No, I, I mean, the studies show that it it's, you know, likely somewhere between 10 and 30%. Okay. So, so it's if it a was, huge share. If, and if, if two in 10 workers were misclassified and on average, it was costing each of those workers. So that's two in 10 workers is 30 million workers of about 150 million worker workforce, correct? Yeah. Plus or minus? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, round numbers and 30 million times $15,000 a year could be $450 billion. Yeah. Right. I You're doing this math on the fly much better than I am, but yes, yeah, but that's I think that's right. Or, yeah. Plus or minus. It's a big chunk of that $50 trillion elephant, Nick. Yeah. Of the two and a half trillion dollars per year, Right. incrementally that flows to the top 1% from the bottom 90% misclassification could be 10 to 20% of that for, you know, three, four, $500 billion. So it's a big, it's a big deal mm -hmm. and something well worth 
taking a crack at. You want to know one stat that I just think is so resonant that's related to this? We did a study on um, the cost of mis uh, of wage theft, of which misclassification is a big contributor yeah. to wage theft. And we showed that wage theft, the cost to workers of wage theft, outpaces the cost of all other kinds of property theft according to FBI data oh, yeah, yeah. by a huge saw that. chunk. It's <laughs> exactly. just like- You had all the bank robberies and yes. all the burglaries and everything else combined. It's like all 10% the of wage theft. It's 10% yeah. of wage theft. Uh-huh. <laughs> it just, I mean, to your point, this is a, yeah, it's a big deal. huge problem. It is not, yeah. um, I do think people are starting to get more aware of it. And I realized this when I was um, watching Abbott Elementary, the, Halloween episode and they had one of the characters dressed up as wage theft. And I was like, yes, <laughs> this is getting mainstream coverage. Oh, I mean, that is so great. Yeah, it was good. It was, yeah, it was really good. Is there any legislation or stuff moving that we can watch or support that addresses this problem that you know of? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot going on on both sides. Um, so one thing that is happening, the Department of Labor is putting out a rule. They're putting out, you know, they have a proposed rule. They still have to finalize it that will reduce misclassification. It will take steps towards reducing misclassification. It's not the really strong standard. The Department of Labor actually doesn't have the authority to put in place a new definition of independent contractor, but it's not the really strong standard. So um, Congress has to do that? Yes. The Yeah, the, the Department of Labor doesn't, the, yeah, they don't have the authority to like redefine independent contractors in the way like they couldn't put in place the ABC test that I discussed earlier, but that's the kind of thing that should be done. So, but the, but the independent contractor rule that the department of labor is working on is an important step. There's a lot of, of interesting stuff going on in the States like California passed a law in 2019 that actually codified this very strong standard for what is an independent contractor known as the ABC test. Um, that was really, really good news. But almost immediately, actually before ABC, before that law was even passed, um, Uber and Lyft announced that they were going to be doing a multi-million dollar campaign to, to pass a ballot initiative that would exempt them from the protections in that new law. And that was what is known as Prop 22. And that passed because of the unbelievable amount of money that Uber and Lyft poured into that campaign to actually make it so they're exempt. Like they are allowed to call their employees who do not in the least pass any kind of sort of strict definition of independent contractor, but under Prop 22, they have found a way to get themselves exempted from that at the expense at, of their workers. And so, uh, and and that kind of thing, those Prop 22-like bills, we're seeing them pop up in other states. So there's, you know, when Uber and Lyft realized that it was like, successful, in California, of all places, they were like, oh, we can do this everywhere. 
And so we we are seeing that proliferate around the country. So that's yeah. a big like set of fights all over the country. Yeah. What do we miss, Goldie? I don't I don't know. I don't even know why we're talking about this. My Econ 101 textbook tells me that if there's a problem, the invisible hand will fix mm. it. <laughs> right? Yeah. This is just leave it up to a competitive market like It'll Uber and Lyft competing against each other. Oh wait, they're working together. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my right solid point. And my favorite like way neoliberal economics sort of enters into this is that people say, oh, the market means that if an employer will pay, you know, a total compensation package for a worker of this month much when they're an employee, then they will pay that same amount when they are an independent contractor, full stop. So the idea is that if you are, you know, paying X amount for an employee, that if they are then, if they are then made an independent contractor, you know, you will fully pay for whatever health insurance you were giving them, whatever retirement benefits you were getting them. Like they will, you will because you you just assume, you just assume perfect efficiency in yeah. competition, yes. right? So if and they were, you're, yeah, you're, so the you're, model they'll says, pay, they'll yeah. pay your half of your FICA yeah. tax. The, yes. That extra um that's what uh, seven point six five yeah whatever it, it is just I I mean and you can certainly come up with I mean econ one hundred one models say exactly that um right. but empirically we know that that is not even close to what happens and when you ask regular people on the street it's like laughable that that's yeah. that's the thing that happens but um you know it it used to be that economists typically believe that you know the field is changing that's that's not so much the case anymore but it's 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 weird nick right because it's almost as if there is a power imbalance between employers <laughs> and employees <laughs> exactly power is the dark matter of economics yeah. uh it, it is very hard to see and characterize but it is 85 percent of what's out there it's where <laughs> most of the gravity is coming it, from exactly. that's for sure <laughs> exactly so yes, anyway well heidi thank you so much um oh, uh, do we get up, the final question yes Nick? we do we've asked her before but we'll just put her on the spot again go for it oh no i i, I feel like i should have prepared for this i have forgotten what the final question is why do you do this work Ooh, that is a good question i don't have a origin story around this work. I have ingrained in me a deep commitment to help right wrongs, make the world a more just place. And that is just an absolutely driving force. I love it. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Well, thank you, Heidi, for being with us. Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. You know, Nick, we, we always ask that final question. Uh, why do you do this work? And we get yeah. amazing answers across the board. But it occurred to me as Heidi was giving her answer in within the context of the conversation we had, what a privilege it is uh, to be able to give these answers. Because for most people, the reason why they do their work is because they have to. Correct. They have to pay the rent. They have to eat. They have to pay their student loans. They have to pay their medical bills and their credit cards. They don't have a choice. Yeah, that's when right. When you see and... the breadth of the wage theft that is going on, that people are losing 
10, 20, 30% of their income by being misclassified in their job. It is for people who don't have another choice. They yeah. have to do this work. Not because they, you know, some of them might like the work. Many people do get gratification from their work other than their pay, but yeah. they have to work. Yeah. There's no question no. And, of and, why and, they and do for it. Most, and for most Americans, they have very narrow set of choices. Right. Right. And, you know, we're lucky and have a really broad set of choices. And, and it, in fairness, the people that we tend to talk to had an incredibly broad set of choices about what to do with their lives, too. And we're getting a little off track here, but I think it's worth reflecting on is, you know, I hang out a lot with business people, mostly incredibly successful business people who are always derisive about government workers and the people who, frankly, don't grub for money as a occupation in the way that they do. And they're always somewhat shocked when I tell them that the majority of people that I get to work with are just much smarter and more interesting than they are or the people they work with. <laughs> and, you know, it, it does turn out that there is a small cadre of people who are motivated more by making the world a better place than by, you know, making their big bank accounts larger. And, you know, we're just incredibly privileged to be among those people because somebody like Heidi Sherholtz could make 10 times as mm -hmm. much money doing the same work that she does effectively uh, for some soulless hedge fund or as a corporate economist for a big bank or whatever it is, right? And, you know, Heidi and frankly, most of the people that we talk to who are immensely talented take a 90% pay cut to do the work that they do. And by the way, that's true for the entire team at Civic Ventures too, right? Well, and, except you know, for me, nobody yeah, would pay exactly. me. It's true. It's true with you. <laughs> nobody, with one but, notable exception. Yeah, yeah, right. We have a very thin labor market, you and I. Yeah, you yeah. could not find anybody else to do what I do, and I could not find anybody else to pay me to do what I do. <laughs> anyway, so. but it is, but it is true. And this, you know, the wage theft and misclassification thing is just a really terrible thing that we need to find a way to crack down on. And, and I do want to reemphasize and encourage folks to uh, click on the link in the show notes, both uh, read the EPI report, but also that shared security piece we yeah. published several years back. It's it's really not that complicated. No, it, it requires rethinking the way we think about work, where we just tell ourselves, oh, all work is work. Yeah. We don't need all these classifications. If we just say all work is work, and that means all work gets benefits, and it's paid by whoever is paying the worker, then all of this complication disappears and all of the opportunities for misclassification and wage theft disappears. Yeah. I think we need to uh, re-up that policy piece. Send it around. Yep. Well, it was fantastic talking to Heidi as always, and uh, we thank her for shining a light on this incredibly important subject. Hopefully we can get some forward progress through the Department of Labor. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.